Hospitality is about making people feel seen. And if that's the case, the best way to do that is not to treat people like a commodity, but as unique individuals. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. This is season three, episode one. In today's season opener, we're gonna set things in motion with a guest whose insights and wisdom are sure to enrich your entrepreneurial journey. Will Gadera is a restaurateur who's been immersed in the restaurant industry since the age of 13. He's the former co-owner of 11 Madison Park, which under his leadership received four stars from the New York Times, three Michelin stars, and in 2017 was named number one on the list of the world's top 50 restaurants. Will is also a national best-selling author of the book, Unreasonable Hospitality. He's married to none other than the celebrity baker, Christina Tosi, who's also been a guest on the podcast. In today's episode, Will shares his commitment to unreasonable hospitality and the importance of moving beyond efficiency to create magical experiences customers will never forget. I'm your host, Chris Allen, and this is the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast, helping you to run and grow a better business. Hey, I just want to welcome Will Gadera to the Entrepreneur Studio. I'm so happy to be here, sincerely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I will say when the chance to have you here was on the table, I was like, okay, well, I have a lot of questions for this guy because I did get a chance to meet your wife and have an extended conversation with her. You did come up a few times, <laughs> you know? So uh, I was like, this is pretty cool to sit down with Will. She's, uh, you, you already got the better interview with her. So, oh. but I'm happy to, to, to play back up. I know, but she's competitive and you know what I mean? You're going to take it up a notch, right? <laughs> <laughs> she's going to come back for round two. Uh, it's super good. Well, you know, Will, you've been in the restaurant industry for, I'm going to say a while, you know, since, since the age of 13, you've worked with the likes of Danny Meyer, who's set in that seat. You've owned numerous award-winning restaurants but you seem to be most known for this idea of unreasonable hospitality. So talk to us about kind of that core motivation behind that idea uh, as an entrepreneur. Yeah, so my restaurant, 11 Madison Park, the one that I'm most known for in 2017 was named the number one restaurant in the world. And I would like to say that that idea being the number one restaurant in the world is, okay, honoring and also a little absurd. Right? How can one restaurant be ranked number one out of yeah. however many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of restaurants? But what the list acknowledges is the restaurant that's having the greatest impact on the world of restaurants at any given time. Um, our first year there was actually in 2010 and we went to the awards and I was all fired up and the awards themselves are not dissimilar to the Oscars, right? You go there, you put on your fanciest tuxedo, you're in this room that's larger than life. That room is filled with your heroes for me, the chefs that I'd wanted to meet over the course of my entire career. But it's very different from the Oscars in one very significant way. If you're nominated for an Oscar, when they get to your award, you're desperate that they call your name, right? Here, if you're in the room, you know you're one of the top 50 restaurants. You just don't know where on the list you fall until you get there. They start at 50, they count down to one. Here, you're desperate that they don't call your name for as long as humanly possible. That's interesting. And I remember we had assigned seating. Um, I like to gamify everything in life. I actually think it's one of my superpowers as a leader because I don't care how much you like your job. 
we can all agree it's more fun to play than it is to work. But it's so true. But you can if you're creative enough, if you look closely enough for the opportunities that surround you, you can figure out how to make work feel like a game. And I think when you do, it's transformational because well, people over the years have always asked me, how did I challenge my team to get better and better and better? And I always say, well, I didn't. I just made our work feel enough like a game and one we all really enjoyed playing. And well, anyone who's ever played a game that they like playing, you know, the more you play, the better you get. So true as well. Um, and so we had assigned seating and I was looking at where we were sitting relative to where the people who had come in number one through five the year before were sitting to try to guess where on the list we were going to fall. And um, I think I guessed number 35. Now they started the countdown and I'm sure there was some amount of the normal welcomes and thank you for comings. But all I really remember was the big debonair British MC saying, coming in at number 50, a new entry from New York City, 11 Madison Park. And I was like, shoot. It was pretty embarrassing. I was pretty angry. People always challenge my perspective there. They're like, hey, you're one of the top 50 in the world. Why are you focusing on the fact that you're in last place? And well, it wasn't a choice. I was genuinely angry, but I think perspective is everything. And do you ever see The Last Dance, the documentary about Michael Jordan? Oh, yeah. You know how he would like, if someone accidentally bumped into him, he would pretend they did it on accident just to fuel his competitiveness? Uh -huh. I think in this day and age, we're so focused on mental wellness and positive perspectives that sometimes we overlook the power of anger and leaning into it and using mm. it to fuel you. Not that we should ever sit in those emotions for too long. But. Yeah, yeah. So I was pretty angry and it fueled me. But ultimately that night I got to acceptance. First, that idea that, okay, being number one is about impact. And when we got there, we were real excellent. Mm. Our food was some of the best in the world. Our service was as close to technically perfect as possible. Our dining room was one of the most beautiful out there. But those are the reasons we were on the list. Mm -hmm. We hadn't actually done anything impactful. The, the restaurants that topped that list before us did so by being unreasonable in pursuit of product. And that night I chose to pursue a path where our impact was going to come from being unreasonable in pursuit of people. That we would push the envelopes of excellence and hospitality simultaneously. That we would continue striving for excellence, but we would also choose to be creative and intentional and unreasonable in pursuit of how we made people feel. And for me, that's what unreasonable hospitality means. It means that you're going to be creative, intentional, relentless, and unreasonable in pursuit of relationships, in pursuit of relationships with the people you work with, and then as a team collectively in pursuit of the relationships with those that you serve. Because I think if you do that correctly, if you consistently and meaningfully invest time, energy, money, grace into your relationship capital accounts. The opportunities that will invariably lie ahead of you are limitless and nothing short of extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Well, there was uh, clearly a motivation that came out that night, you know, you emoted about that. What was the really the first thing that you did where you kind of harness this idea of not necessarily being excellent only in the product, but being excellent in the experience that people and the way that they felt. What was really the first thing you remember going back and sort of like, okay, we're gonna go after this now. What was sort of the first thing that you did after that, that kind of moment at the, at the awards? So I think whenever 
a leader has an audacious idea, the first thing they need to do, before you even try to bring that idea to life, is say it out loud to your team. Right? My, my dad gave me this plaque when I was a kid, or this paperweight when I was a kid. It said, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And he would always encourage me over the course of my life and my career to answer that question honestly at varying intervals and whatever the answer was to try to do that. But he'd always say that far too many people are scared to say their most audacious goals out loud for fear that if they do and don't achieve them, they'll let themselves and those around them down. Nothing audacious in my view, ever happens unless you say it out loud to the people you work with over and over and over again, which by the way is a risk. Because if as a leader, you say to your entire group, we are going to accomplish something and you fail to accomplish, that is hard on morale. But success is a team effort. Then you need everyone pointing their energy and, and their efforts in the same direction. And so I went back and got the entire team together in pre-meal. Um, pre-meal, for those listening who haven't worked in a restaurant, that's the 30-minute meeting that we have as a team right before we open the doors and start serving our guests. I, I believe, well, most restaurants do it. A lot of them waste it. They waste it by talking about ideas that could so easily be communicated via an email, mm-hmm. what you're serving, a new dish, a new glass of wine, whatever. I think a pre-meal is an opportunity for a leader to share moments of inspiration and invite the team to do the same in return. I think a pre-meal is a time for goal setting. It's a time to talk about the how and the why, not just the what. A well-run pre-meal is when the people you work with cease being a collection of individuals and come together as a trusting team. And it's my fundamental belief that any business who is charged with serving other people, if they had their version of a daily huddle, where they shared these bombastic ideas about connection and importance. It would transform customer service as we know it. And so I went back to the team and said, hey, we are going to be the number one restaurant in the world. It is going to take time. We need to be patient in our pursuit, but we are going to do it and we're going to do it through focusing on unreasonable hospitality. Okay, that was my role as the leader, Mm -hmm. to say the what and the why, and then it was our collective role to figure out the how. Because I didn't even really know what unreasonable hospitality meant. I just knew that that was the direction we needed to go. Um, The first thing we did as a group was we started interrogating the guest experience. Mm. When I say interrogating, it's a harsh term, but that is with intention. I think people in customer service oftentimes don't know what every single one of the touch points in their guest journey are because they've never paused for long enough to consider them. If you can unpack and discover some of the most unlikely touch points and then figure out how to make them a little more gracious, a little more warm, a little more awesome, you can give yourself an unfair competitive advantage because you are now focusing your energy on a part of the experience that none of your competitors have ever even realized exists. Mm -hmm. The example I always like to give is Five Guys. Have you ever been to Five Guys? Oh, yeah. What do you think of when you think of Five Guys? Uh, really good fries. Really good fries. <laughs> Cheeseburgers are yep. great. Yep. A lot of people, when I ask that question, say peanuts. Five Guys has that box of peanuts. They do. Five, and basically, when you're waiting on 
for your burger to be cooked. You can put some peanuts in a little thing and eat them while you wait. Yeah. Five Guys is the only fast food restaurant in the world, as far as I know, that had the wherewithal to recognize that the time waiting for your burger to be cooked is a part of the experience. Yeah. And they're the only people that have done anything with that. And it's given them an unfair competitive advantage because, well, the fact that they're doing something when no one else is doing anything is pretty profound. And that is a part of the experience. Waiting for your food is a part of the experience. It is. It's a reality. And so uh, this is a long-winded way of me saying our first pass was truly understanding every touch point because only once you've isolated each touch point do you have the capacity to elevate them. And I always challenge people, regardless of industry, if you are in the business of serving other people, Find a touch point that no one else has considered and make it a little more awesome. That's the definition of strategy. You can't be better than everyone at everything. So you need to pick your moves. And the smallest enhancement to the least likely part of the experience can have an asymmetrical impact on the way that that experience feels. It's powerful. Now, you did just talk about five guys. <laughs> and you have a friend who has another chain of burger restaurants. I do. I do. <laughs> so talk to us about the influence of Danny Meyer and your, your relationship with him. You know, I will, because that's one of my favorite things to talk about, but I'll just say this real quick. I love In-N-Out Burger as well. And <laughs> You're not even going to say the name. No, no, no. I'm going to say Shake Shack in a second, but my Danny Myers, one of my two greatest mentors, Randy Garudi is the CEO of Shake Shack. And he was my first boss when I worked for Danny as the general manager. When Randy was my general manager in my first job out of college. I posted something about In-N-Out Burger on Instagram one time and it was literally like 45 seconds and Randy called me. He's like, dude, what the heck? <laughs> so publicly, I guess I'm speaking publicly right now. Yeah, Shake Shack is my favorite fast food burger. For I just want to make that clear for the record. So Danny Meyer... And Danny Meyer gave me the foundation upon which I've built everything. I think when you're coming up and you want to pursue a path, you need a hero to look up to. Yeah. You need someone who has achieved not only success, but notoriety in that field, such that you have someone who one day you want to be like. And Danny was that person for me. He was that person for me because he was the first person that took all the creativity that chefs have long been celebrated for putting on the plate and invested that into the way that those plates were served. Danny showed me that, yeah, there was a world of opportunity in flexing the rules around how to make people feel seen when they walked through the doors and into your room. But he's taught me so much. I think one of the biggest lessons, though, is the power of language and the need to, with great intention, articulate what you believe, what your non-negotiables are, what your core values are. Because until you've come up with these short, succinct, little ways to articulate what you're trying to achieve, it's impossible for everyone in the company to be rowing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, Danny had all these isms, right? Charitable assumption, the idea that you should assume the best in people and don't jump to conclusions. Another way of saying it is don't say the thing before asking the question, like seek to understand before jumping to judgment. Um, the swan, this idea of 
in any service industry, yeah, we should be kicking below the surface like crazy people to try to be the most efficient and the most excellent. But on top of the water, we should look graceful like we're just, you know, floating over the water. So many of these things. To the point where some of my friends who graduated from college and I went to the hotel school at Cornell, so we were all in various restaurant or hotel companies, would call our company a cult because we had all these like shared language things, these isms. But I've come to believe that those who call one company a cult are generally working in a company that has not invested as much time or energy into their culture. So true, very true. And so Danny taught me that words matter and a leader, a great leader has so many responsibilities, but one of those is taking the time to truly articulate to their team what you stand for and being consistent in upholding those values. Something else that I, I thought was really amazing and, and you being here is kind of an embodiment of that. But when Danny kind of, you know, he sat in the seat and when he talked about this idea of building teams and building culture, one of the things that he spent, I'd say a lot of time talking about is his idea of having one restaurant and doing it excellent and it being great had a point where he realized that there was nowhere for people to go. Hmm. He built these teams and built these incredible, this excellence, and there was nowhere for them to go. And so he, he was like, I got to break out and give these people a place to go. So is that something that you experienced where he created space for you to be more than what you, know, you were when you started with him? Oh, for sure. I mean, Danny, especially in those early years, he was really good. I, I got there in 2001. So, I mean, Danny had just yeah. one restaurant for a really, yeah. really long time. By the time I got there, it was starting to grow a little bit. So I got there, he had four restaurants. Yeah. And it was difficult to find yourself feeling complacent there. And yet at the same time, he created such appropriate environments within each restaurant that you weren't thinking about your next step the moment you started the one before it. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the issues that a lot of companies have is, especially generationally, as people are increasingly impatient and always focusing on what's next. The problem you can find yourself in if you're in a growing company is that people are so focused on their next promotion that they never give themselves the time to bloom where they're planted. And so... I think what Danny did really, really well is create this balance between knowing that as long as you worked there, if you excelled, there would be opportunities for you to grow. But also instilling in all of us this understanding that we should be audacious in our ambition, but patient in our pursuit. Knowing that until you see all of the seasons pass in one role, it's not even appropriate to begin thinking about where you want to go next. Because I think if you have one foot in yesterday and one foot on in tomorrow, what's the, the adage? Like you're, you're missing the now. Yeah, you're missing the now. And, and so I think that was a balance. He was very, very good at culturally striking. Now let's bring you all the way back to you've made your first move after the 50th place 
on a really remarkable list. <laughs> Last place. Yeah, <laughs> I can see you're competitive. Uh, and then walk us up to like, where'd you land in 2017 to get that number one spot? What were a couple of the stops along the way that got you there? Because I, I do like this idea of radical reinvention that you've brought up, the unreasonable hospitality sort of foundation that you operate from. But like, what are some of the stops along the way that got you to, what do you accredit or attribute your getting to number one? Yeah, so the the real breakthrough moment that came about a year and a half after those those awards, the first time we were there, and this has become a, like a legend a little bit because I've, I've told the story a bunch of times, but it was about a year and a half later, I was in the office doing emails during lunch service and I got a call from the, the maitre d' saying, hey, we're, we're getting getting killed out here. We need some more hands. And so I went out and just started clearing tables. By the way, as the owner of that restaurant, one of my favorite things to do was clear tables. Because I think it's just a beautiful sign to everyone on your team that doesn't matter what position you hold, you are going to do the thing that you are asking them to do. And you're going to do it better than everyone else too. <laughs> right? Like uh, Danny used to say that, show your fire. It doesn't matter what leadership role you're in. You better make sure that at varying times you're stepping in and reminding people how you got the job that you currently have. Powerful. And I found myself clearing appetizers from a table of four foodies. Um, there were Europeans in New York on vacation who were just there to eat at restaurants. And this was their last meal. They were literally heading to the airport right after their meal to go home. And while I was at the table, I overheard them talking and they were going on and on about the amazing trip they had and talking about Per Se and Le Bernardin and Danielle and Jean-Georges, all the great restaurants. And now they were at 11 Madison Park and then one woman jumped in and said, yeah, but you know what? We never had one of those hot dogs from a street cart. And it was like that moment in a cartoon where the light bulb goes off over the character's head and you know they've had a good idea, right? And so... As calmly as I could, I walked back into the kitchen, dropped off the plates, and then literally ran outside of the street corner where one of the hot dog carts lived, and I bought a hot dog, ran back inside. Then came the hard part, convincing my chef to serve it in our fancy restaurant. But I asked him to trust me. I told him it was important to me. That second line was a big one. We talked about this earlier. If you are lucky enough, which I was at that time, to work alongside an entire group of like-minded people who were passionate in wanting to be the best at something, I mean, my gosh, that's a blessing. Because I can all but guarantee every single person listening to this has had the experience at some point in their lives of caring more than their colleagues. And it is one of the most soul-sucking feelings. It's very lonely. And so once you get to a place where you're surrounded by really passionate people, you better not lose the perspective where, where you stop uh, appreciating that, where you start taking that for granted. Yeah. That said, when it is the case, there's always going to be tension because if you work with passionate people who agree on wanting to be the best, you're going to constantly disagree on what it takes to become the best. And so we had a ton of tension in our restaurant all the time because we're all really passionate and competitive and we all wanted to be the best. And we all came from different walks of life. And so we had different ways to navigate through the tension. Um, if you and I were ever arguing about something, either one of us could at any point just say, time out, switch sides. And then I'd have to argue your position and you'd have to argue mine. What you very quickly realize is most people just want to be right. And the moment I start arguing a position that just moments ago I was arguing against, now I want this position. <laughs> um, if that didn't work, you could say, okay, time out again, third option. Which meant, hey, if neither one of us has been able to convince the other person, maybe 
we just don't have a good idea on the table yet. And maybe we need to work together to come up with something different from either of our perspectives that's actually better for the business. Or if that didn't work, someone could just say, this is important to me. And that meant, hey, this is more important to me than it is to you. And so I should, I should win this one, which I do believe to be true. There is the underlying rule, though, that no one should ever be abusing the this is important to me card. It takes trust. Anyway, so I said that. We cut the hot dog up into four perfect pieces, added a little swish of ketchup, a swish of mustard, and a perfect little scoop of sauerkraut and relish to each plate. And before their final savory course, which was a honey lavender glazed Muscovy duck that had been dry aged for two weeks, I brought out what we in New York call a dirty water dog to the table. This simple little gesture changed everything about my approach to restaurants because they freaked out. I mean, I'd been serving food my entire life, millions and millions of dollars, foie gras, wagyu beef, foie gras, caviar. I'd never seen anyone react to anything I served them like they did to that $2 hot dog. You know, athletes go to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they did wrong. They don't often enough go to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did right to make sure they keep on doing that thing. That's how you take these little moments of organic brilliance that happen within a business and grab onto them and hold onto them and put systems behind them to make sure that they become a part of the fabric of your organization. It almost like breaks my heart to think about how many amazing things just kind of fluttered away because no one had the wherewithal to recognize that those were game-changing things that they should grab onto. Mm-hmm. So I went to the tapes on that hot dog. Like what happened? So that it could happen. And what did we need to start doing as an organization in our culture to make sure it would start happening all the time? The first, it required being present, which is like a way overused kind of woo-woo thing these days, but I think it's imperative in hospitality. For, for me, being present just means caring so much about the person you're with that you stop caring about everything else you need to do. With our phones, with to-do lists, with the ever-increasing number of distractions in our lives, I think we have a real hard time slowing down for long enough to actually listen to the people around us and and doing so hear from them the things that will bring them the most joy. Had I been focused on efficiency in that moment, I would have, while I was clearing their plates, been looking around the dining room to figure out what table I needed to go to next and would have missed out on that opportunity. But instead, I was present, and so I picked up on that line about the hot dog. Second, It required the notion that, hey, if you want to be the best in anything, you better take what you do seriously. And also, we all need to stop taking ourselves so seriously. Brands are very, very important, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, there's an awesome marketing team in this company that spends a ton of time thinking about your brand. And justifiably so, that is your bumper sticker to the world. But far too often, the brand starts telling you whether or not you're allowed to do certain things to make other people happy. And when that happens, the entire equation is out of whack. Mm -hmm. A hot dog in a four-star restaurant is sacrilegious, but look how it made them feel. And then third, I mean, this is kind of one of the very definitions of unreasonable hospitality. Hospitality is about making people feel seen and If that's the case, the best way to do that is not to treat people like a commodity, but as unique individuals. I really believe I could have given that table a freaking bottle of vintage champagne and a Home Depot bucket full of caviar. It would not have had the same impact because it would not have been specific to them. Unreasonable hospitality is one size fits one. The greatest gestures are bespoke to the person receiving them. And so 
the hot dog, that became our new true north. And in those three things, we had a roadmap. And so obviously change happens in a team huddle. So I got back into pre-meal and started talking to the team and saying, hey, go out there and start finding opportunities of your own, opportunities to bring these gestures to life. Be present. Don't take yourselves too seriously. Find one size fits one opportunities. And let me acknowledge something there. I think and talk a lot about control versus creativity. Remember, this is a three Michelin star restaurant. I controlled a lot of what we did, mm -hmm. right? Glasses need to be placed such that the logo faced the guest, the silverware needed to be placed exactly, I don't even know what this is called, for those of you listening, I'm pointing at the end of my thumb, that distance from the edge of the table, food served from this direction, cleared from this direction, tablecloths ironed, all this stuff, all these details that needed to be done consistently, perfectly. And yet, I'm also telling my team in that moment, go come up with whatever idea you want. I'm going to give you the permission and the resources to bring it to life. And so to that end, we added a position to the team, someone called the Dreamweaver, named after the iconic song by Gary Wright. <laughs> and that person's only role was to help everyone else on the team bring their ideas to life. And with the addition of that position and this newfound permission and resource-based pursuit, we were on fire. I mean, we talked earlier about some of the stuff we did, but a couple, we did things that cost money, Family of four from Spain was in the restaurant, parents and their children, the two kids. We had these big windows overlooking the park and it started snowing and we realized that the kids had never seen real snow. Dreamweavers somehow found a store still open selling sleds and when they left, there was an Uber SUV with the sleds in the back and take them to Central Park for the best nightcap of all, a few hours of play in the freshly fallen snow. Or we did things that were completely free. One time a couple... Um, was dining with us and we learned they'd just gotten married at City Hall. They had a really big wedding planned, but the families fell out of love. There was some, some drama or something. This was now their wedding night. The server on her own committed herself to over the few hours they were dining with us to figure out what their wedding song was going to be. And we slowed down their meals such that they were the last people in the restaurant. When they were done, we brought them up into the private dining room, which was empty that night. And our team was having a party, their wedding reception. And when they walked in on cue, we put on Lovely Day by Bill Withers and we gave them the gift of their first dance. Mm. We just did thousands of these things, which created this environment of electricity because yes, we were making the people dining with us feel real good. But in doing so, we were happier than we'd ever been at work because there is nothing more energizing than when you see the look on someone else's face once they receive a gift, you're responsible for giving them. We all very quickly became addicted to that feeling. Mm -hmm. And I love that the Dreamweaver is a, a, like a formal position, right? But like, t talk about like, is this person on the floor at each service, right? And they're listening or are they, what, what's sort of the day in the life of a, of a Dreamweaver? They're on the floor every service. We had a team of them. Um, but they're not the one coming up with the ideas. I mean, that's the thing. I think I've seen a lot of people since this book came out. I've had a lot of people reach out to me saying, we've hired a Dreamweaver. We've hired Dreamweavers. And some of them have gotten it right and other people haven't. Because what they do is they hire a Dreamweaver and they're like, you're in charge. You're Come the up idea. with the ideas. 
that person can't come up with the ideas. If you're serving people, it's the people that are serving those people that need to be empowered to come up with the ideas because they know those people better than anyone can. Any better than you as the owner or the leader or the manager and certainly better than one individual who's meant to cover dream weaving on behalf of an entire company. They're there to execute the ideas of those on the front line and make the ideas better, right? But if you delegate hospitality to an individual, not only is the hospitality going to be less curated and less appropriate and less thoughtful, but you're also removing one of the most fundamental reasons why any organization should employ this approach, which is that you are, I mean, in my restaurant, the people in the dining room, the people who are actually responsible. Like when you go to a restaurant, your server has the most influence on whether it was a good meal or not. Mm -hmm. They have more influence than the owner or the manager. That's your person, right? And yet in almost every restaurant, that person is just serving you plates of food that someone else created. If you double down on hospitality, you're giving that person agency, empowerment. You are now putting them in a position where they are imbuing the experience with their own creativity. You're turning them from salespeople into product designers. And I have yet to meet a single individual that won't give more of themselves to help something succeed than once they feel they have had a genuine hand in determining what that thing is. So basically what you're saying is that you created a culture of hospitality, delegated the ideation of that from this core idea of unreasonable hospitality, and you kept doubling down on what that actually really meant and showing examples of what unreasonable hospitality meant and curated this idea that you then delegated, you built it into your culture and then delegated that to everyone in the restaurant. And the Dreamweaver is in the delivery business. They're not in the ideation business. They may have an idea, but like the server is the one that sort of brings that or uh, somebody greeting other people at the table. It could be, you know, you like you went to the table to, to clear some plates and you own the place. I mean, anyone could come up with the idea as a yeah. busboy, a food runner. The Dreamweaver still got to be creative, right? Sure. Because you go and you say, hey, this guy like really loves, I don't know, the movie Sleepless in Seattle. Like, what can we do? And the Dreamweaver was like a thought partner and a creative Got partner it. to come up with something fun. So yeah. they could help evolve the idea into exactly. something they could actually do. But they can't be the person like generating the, the seed of the idea because, I mean, here's the deal. Like Danny Meyer would always say hospitality is a team sport. It doesn't matter how hospitable any one individual is on the team. It's the hospitality of the entire team that defines your success. And that's true, right? Like no one person can influence everyone in a dining room in the same way that no one person can influence every customer in any customer service organization. But I've found that a lot of people say like, well, that's all well and good, but my team doesn't like fully embody hospitality and so mm -hmm. we're not ready to take that leap. I found that the more trust you give people, the more trustworthy they become, the more responsibility you give people, the more responsible they become the more you extend invitations to your team to come up with ways in which they can provide more gracious hospitality to their customers, the more hospitable they become. And so I really do believe it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah. So when I heard you say that about, you know, give someone more responsibility, the more responsible they tend to become, picking those people that are investable in that way, what are some of the traits that you look for to say, you know what, 
they belong here and I'm going to give them the responsibility. What are the signals? You know, it's interesting. A lot of the people I looked up to when I was coming up in my career would say something to the effect of you hire for hospitality and you train for excellence. Almost implying that excellence is a muscle that can be strengthened, but hospitality is something you either have or you don't. And I very fundamentally disagree with that. I think hospitality is a muscle that can be strengthened too. And I think every single person I've ever met has the capacity for kindness, which means you also have the capacity to be hospitable. It's true. But sometimes you just need to know, well, first, how good it feels to receive hospitality in order to be motivated to want to turn around and pay it forward. Like, I have this thesis that if there is a, a law passed, or let's say you and I, you and I took two weeks and stood outside of a DMV somewhere in America. And everyone that went to walk into the DMV, we said, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you are really, really nice to everyone that works in there. I bet a couple weeks later, that DMV would start to feel like a pretty warm and fuzzy place. But of course, the people at the DMV are most often rude and known for being rude because no one's nice to them. Not at all. Hospitality is a virtuous cycle. You can't be expected to be nice if no one's nice to you. Now, in a business, you get to prime the pump as the leader by being nice to those people, even if their customers aren't yet nice to them in return. And then if you are nice to your people and they start to lead with generosity and kindness with the customers, then it starts to come back to them. So I believe that it's not about hiring for hospitality and training for excellence. I just think you hire people that you feel a connection to and then train them and encourage them how to excel at both. I think one of the things I've found out there, so here I'll use this as a metaphor. I have a really good friend. She is 35 years old. She is beautiful and smart and creative and funny and she wants to get married and she really wants to have kids and she is still single because she has this really long list of every single box that her potential partner needs to check. And I think based on the length of that list, there might be like four people in the world that would check all of them. I think we do that as we try to hire often as well. Yeah. I think people, when they list requirements from an experiential perspective or a credential perspective, put so many things on those lists that they end up weeding out, filtering out some of the people that could have been perfect for that job. And by the way, in doing so are selling themselves short as leaders because if you are as good a leader as many people believe themselves to be, you should be able to teach or train half of the things you're putting on that list if you have the right person who wants to learn on the receiving end of your education. And so when I am looking to hire someone, I make the list of what I need them to come pre-equipped with as short as humanly possible based on the position. And then I just sit down with them and try to get to know them. Are they passionate? Do I think they can be really hardworking? Do I trust them? And most importantly, do I want to spend time with them? And will my team want to spend time with them? And if those things are all correct, then I believe we can, we can work together. I, I was in Wyoming with a group of people a couple months ago. And one of the guys that was there as this British guy named Angus who rows oceans. So he puts together teams of four people. They get in a boat and they row across an ocean. And it's intense, right? This takes 60, 70, 80 days. 
they row for two hours, sleep for two hours, row for two hours, sleep. I mean, this is over months, right? It's insane. And I said, hey, man, this is one of my favorite questions to ask someone if I meet them who does something dramatically different than I do. I say, if I, you know, wanted to start rowing oceans, like what's the biggest lesson you'd teach me or you'd give me? And he said, pick the right team, not the best team. And this whole thing is he starts to put a team together 18 months before they start rowing. He goes, I can get anyone in shape in 18 months and I can teach anyone how to row. But the chemistry that exists within the four of us will either make or break us. And he told the story about how they had a race with a bunch of different people. And it was one of the other teams was the American team. And the Americans had a ton of sponsorship and they put together the most like badass group of guys with crazy experience. And he was operating on a shoestring budget and just got a few of his friends and trained them for a couple of years. And they beat the Americans by 30 days. Because like 20 days into the row, the Americans started fighting because they all had such big egos and, yeah. and their whole thing fell apart. So I guess the really short way in which I could have answered your question is how do I hire? I try to pick the right people, not the best people. Mm -hmm. So let's like wipe the slate clean. You, you know, you're doing a very new business. What is sort of the first hire that you would make? Like, let's say you're going to do 11 Madison Park again. What's your first hire? Well, when possible, the advice I would give people is forget about what position you're trying to hire for and first look deep into your community and figure out what is the right person that you want to start with. Because I think you can start, like, listen, depending on the company, you can start with someone in operations, someone in brands, someone in marketing, someone in finance, right? But man, you say wipe the slate clean. If I ever am in a position where the slate has been wiped completely clean, I've messed up badly. Right? <laughs> yeah. Seriously. And, and I mean that from a human capital perspective. That doesn't mean wiping the slate clean is in one part, okay, you sell a company, you start a new one. Wiping the slate clean in another sense of the word is you are no longer connected to any one of the people with whom you have a relationship with and you're starting with a bunch of strangers. And if you've done that, you've made a bunch of mistakes. Yeah. Because when you've worked with people for any sort of extended period of time, you have an established shorthand. They know you, you know them, you know one another's strengths and weaknesses and therefore have the ability to leverage those in each other. And so I would just look around at who have I worked with in the past? Who do I trust? Who do I enjoy time with the most? Who could be passionate about this idea in the same way that I am? Start with that person. Yeah. Because, man, I don't care how good you are. Being alone when you start something, it just sucks and it's lonely and you will be less effective. And finding whether or not it's a partner in like the ownership sense of the word is irrelevant. But find one of your people. That's the best advice I'd give. It's good. Well, one of the things that I, I definitely wanted to make space for is for you to talk to us about the 95-5 rule. So the, the, the 95 five rule is the way that I have managed my businesses over the years, which is I manage every expense like a freaking maniac 95% of the time. And when I say a freaking maniac, I mean, there is no expense too small to be poured over in the most excruciating of ways. <laughs> Like I'll give you, you example. You have a knack for an attention to detail. Let's just say. <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, and by the way, I actually have fun in the creative pursuit of managing expenses, which is one thing that people in my industry 
certainly struggle with at times. They love the creative process of what plates to use and the colors in the room and how to build a wine list and a cocktail list, but they don't derive the same amount of pleasure in the creative process of optimizing profitability. And I think with just a simple shift in perspective, well, all of those things are creative and why not find the joy in all of them? Which, by the way, what's the point of doing anything if you're not bringing some profit to the bottom line? Yeah, so true. And in my world, okay, I'll just have people over for dinner if it's not going to be profitable. (laughs) But I'll give you an example. Like in a fine dining restaurant, there can never be a fingerprint on the rim of the plate. So we have these little rolls of paper towels that are dipped in water and vinegar that you wipe the plate with right before it goes out just to make sure as the cooks were finishing it, there's not a fingerprint on it. We would cut those paper towels in half because the size of a normal paper towel was more than we needed. And it just felt like a waste to spend two pennies on each one of them instead of one penny, right? The Mm -hmm. the cumulative effect of that change is ridiculous. But I believe if you care about managing expenses, you need to care about all of them. So 95% of the time, like maniacs, which earns you the right to 5% of the time spend foolishly. And I just did air quotes for those of you who can't see me because I actually believe that that foolish spending is not foolish at all. That is the spending that creates the kind of loyalty that preserves, protects, and ultimately grows your business. And for us, the foolish spending would have been the dream weavers and the sleds and, or for our team. You know, we were really, really disciplined about minimizing overtime and things like that, the normal things that, you know, a company should do in running a business. And yet we would throw staff parties that cost an absurd amount of money because that would be the thing that people would remember. One of the ways I talk about it is like, if you are evenly distributing your focus on expenses, you're going to have an efficient but completely unmemorable business. Whereas if you're a little more aggressive in how you manage the expenses 95% of the time and just blow it out the last 5%, that is how you actually leave a lasting impression that results in the kind of memories that people will never forget. You know, there's something to that, right? Someone on the receiving end of an expense cut like that could be frustrated by that because it's like, man, it's just more cutting or that things like that. But for some reason in the culture that you've built and tend to foster they can live in that and participate in that because they know that there is, you are saving for an investment either in your people and the employees and experience that they're having or your customers. It isn't just going into your wallet. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, it needs to be both. You can't do all of it and only reinvest in the customers because, well, then the employees are like, well, what is like, this is, yeah, what, what am I, what do I get out of this? Um, And it's also less scalable. Because if you don't show the people on your team the kind of hospitality that you want them to be showing to others, you're ultimately going to be setting yourself back. That's good. Well, we've talked about a lot of stuff. And I would say if Danny Meyer's enlightened hospitality is your floor, and let's say your ceiling is unreasonable hospitality, what's this sort of next generation's version? What's the evolution, man? Gosh, that's a big question. I told Christine, just so you know, I told Christina this morning, I have one question for Will. And I told her, she said, ooh, that's good. I mean, I don't know about a next generation thing. This is what I'm thinking about a lot right now. And it sounds so 
cliche and trite, but I'm actually so that there's very few things that simultaneously terrify me and excite me beyond articulation, which is AI and how it applies to hospitality and customer service. Because I think AI has the capacity to supercharge hospitality in the most beautiful of ways. I think if harnessed in the right way, AI can be the thing that takes all those things I did at a three Michelin star number one restaurant in the world and make them scalable to the point where we can start experiencing that sense of feeling seen so much more often in our day-to-day life. Mm. But it completely hinges on the way it's used. Because I think that some companies will use, and I'm not like, I'm not talking about being terrified by like sci-fi yeah, AI yeah, you're stuff. Not that's not, that's not where I'm going. But I'm talking about the fact that some companies will use AI to give humans the tool to be even more human. And some companies will use AI to replace their humans. I'm terrified of the second one and I'm so excited to see how unbelievably connective and human we can be if we have this new tool in our toolbox. I mean, you think about, you, you are built, culture is a machine, you know, like what you're putting into it has this outcome and output that only it can do. It's the same thing with AI. If you feed it and train it and develop the culture yeah. or the idea or the, the value system, things like that, it will be able to produce things and it will sort of augment all of what we're capable of thinking. I mean, imagine like, if I could be the one that trained the AI that interacted with you when you call Verizon and are put on hold, I mean, that is a game changer, right? And so, man, I'm excited to embrace that and and try to inform it and see where it goes from here. And so enlightened hospitality to unreasonable hospitality, my answer is not actually the next step there. I haven't figured it out yet. I'll send you the book when I have. There you go. (laughs) But the AI thing is... In a world where there's a lot of people talking about how the world is over, and I, that I believe is a beautiful shining light of opportunity and optimism that I think will come from it. So good. I've asked you a lot of questions, but I have a couple of them that I'd really like to just know. These are the rapid fire questions. Here we go, rapid fire. Outside of New York, what's your favorite eater's destination? Favorite eater's destination outside of New York, a restaurant in Seattle called Canless third generation family run restaurant that is the only restaurant I know of in America that has that much history and yet is still so relevant. Mm. All right, best New York song. Is it New York State of Mind by Billy Joel? No sleep till Brooklyn Beastie Boys or something else? (sighs) Billy Joel. Okay, if you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be? Oh, Elvis. Elvis, yes. Who cooks more at home, you or Christina? Definitely Christina. Ooh. I mean, she's on, I mean, that let's just say she's sense. on Instagram a lot, <laughs> cooking and baking. Uh, what's your favorite non-sweet meal that Christina makes? Oh, my favorite non-sweet. She makes this, it's like one of our comfort dishes. She'll do this roast chicken and like this orzo with mushrooms and like this creamy chicken stock kind of thing. And it's just perfection. You guys are lucky. Let's just, let's just be real. <laughs> What in uh, what New York City street fair do you crave? Street fair. I mean, I do like a hot dog, but also like just one of those rice and, and meat dishes from a halal cart, I yeah. think is one of life's great pleasures. I would agree with that. Uh, what's the last book that you read that you just couldn't put down? 
I'm in the midst of reading The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, and it is good. His it, stuff has been awesome recently. He's just crushing it. And it, like, the, just the first page, I mean, I always talk about like, in our conversation before how there are people that say I'm not that creative and I think it's just utter BS, like everyone is creative. And he articulates it in such a cool way at the beginning of the book. If you've ever just come up with a new way to get home, you're creative. Like everyone is creative and we all actually are exhibiting our inner and like our own creativity on a daily basis. We've just been trained to think that creativity is only when you like write a song or mm. like make a movie or paint a painting. And listen, the, the Maya Angelou quote, like she said, I think I'm gonna, I might get this a little wrong, but the more creative you are, the more creative you become. And like, you can't become creative unless you start being creative. And him saying that we are all already expressing creativity on a daily basis, I feel like is a really good shortcut to getting where we all have the ability to go. Yeah, I love the, if you've ever found a new way home, uh, you're creative. I also like to say resourcefulness is the businessman's creativity, mm. you know? Cause I mean, it's it's true. It's like figuring this stuff out, Yeah, you know, finding a way. For sure. I think that's really good. All right, last question. If your story were ten, turned into a movie, what would be the title? <laughs> Christina Tozzi's husband. <laughs> baking yet not baking. I love that. Hey, well, it was uh, it was awesome to sit down and have this conversation with you. You are beautifully articulate, inspiring more than maybe you give yourself credit for. It was awesome to sit and talk with you. And I, I hope everybody listening has found a way to take the hospitality context that you're doing and find it in their own top context so that they can do something remarkable with their work. That's I really awesome. appreciate you coming. Thank you, brother. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. For links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, or for more information on how we can help you run and grow a better business, see the show notes of this episode, or just visit estudio.life. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and find us on Instagram at entrepreneurs.studio and on YouTube at The Entrepreneurs Studio. We'll see you again next time for another inspiring conversation with an entrepreneur who's been in your shoes. <laughs>